1: We've got a very, very, very important show today with two fantastic guests. Russia's criminal and brutal invasion of Ukraine continues with terrible humanitarian consequences. How badly is the war going, though, for Russia, for example? Is it possible for Russia to achieve long-term war aims? What exactly are those long-term war aims? But obviously, I'm very interested and we're very interested in talking about the impact on the Ukrainian people and on Ukrainian society in the midst of this particularly brutal invasion by the Russian army. Now, later on on the show, and I do think it's important we talk about this, I had some comments suggesting this is alarmism, trying to scare people. Why would we even bring this up? And it is not an issue I would like to talk about in the ideal world which we do not exist in, which is the spectre of nuclear Armageddon. Now, that spectre was something which people became almost used to during the Cold War. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the early 1960s, the world did come to the brink of a nuclear apocalypse, which could well have destroyed human civilization as you and I understand it. Now, Russia is armed with 7,000 nuclear warheads, the West itself obviously has a huge battery of nuclear arms. The Even the prospect, however small it may seem, of nuclear war, which is what a military conflagration between nuclear armed powers is likely to lead to, it is important to talk about it. What that actually means, what the risk is, but what that actually means. Lots of people understandably angry and traumatized by what they're seeing in terms of terrible atrocities being committed by putin's army want to do something desperately want to do something and indeed ukraine's president has called for a no-fly zone in quite emotional terms which we'll discuss and given the plight of the russia of the ukrainian people that's understandable a lot of that discussion of a no-fly zone amongst many people in the west doesn't seem to understand what a no-fly zone is which is a military enforcement of 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 the skies over ukraine which means shooting down russian planes which of course means bringing the west into a war so it is important that we talk about this because however you know we've seen obviously russia putting its nuclear arsenal on standby even that just the prospect of that and what that actually means in practical terms is something we need to talk about and with john later Uh, by the brilliant uh, Beatrice Finn of uh, the Nobel Prize-winning, it should be said, international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons. And we're going to talk about that in detail. Now, before bringing our first guest, we're very lucky to have a Ukrainian social scientist, Volodymyr Shenko, who we've already spoken to on this show. Let's just have a little quick look at how things are going. Now, as i said, is this going particularly well for Russia? There has been huge resistance, not just Obviously, in military terms, but from the Ukrainian people more generally. his scenes from, and I will keep mispronouncing things, so please do bear with me. I think it's Novopskov, and this is how uh, Ukrainians have met the occupying Russian army. Novopskov, oh.
2: Novopskov, Novopskov, Ukraine.
1: So you can see ordinary Ukrainian citizens facing off armed Russian soldiers. We've seen also scenes in Kherson of Ukrainians who are protesting as well. <laughs> We've seen anti war protests in Moscow and hundreds, around 611 protesters have so far been arrested. It's uh, believed across Russia. As you can see there, pretty brutal uh, tactics from the Russian police, and also as far away as the Siberian city of Irkutsk. see there a mood of defiance amongst ordinary russians against the war now we've seen i mean images of terrible destruction by the russian army this is a picture from kharkiv amnesty international have said uh, that they've analyzed the evidence including photos videos and satellite imagery of indiscriminate attacks in ukraine and verified violations of international law which could amount to war crimes so At the same time, there were negotiations ongoing between the Ukrainian and Russian side. What they were supposed to agree to was a humanitarian corridor to allow refugees to be able to peacefully flee without being shot at and shelled. Now, there's a lot of evidence that Russia violated the terms of those humanitarian corridors. There was a precedent for that because uh, if you look at what Putin's forces did in Syria, very brutal, it has to be said, terrible atrocities in collaboration with the Assad regime, which barrel bombed its own people. Um, and in, in, in Syria, humanitarian corridors were violated by Russian forces. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that is happening again. Now, just before I bring in first guests, as ever just housekeeping do, if you're watching live, click on the YouTube link, press like, and subscribe, press like. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear your thoughts. I always look through the comments afterwards. Um, You can support the channel our documentaries. We've got another documentary to come very soon, which you will decide on patreon.com forward slash OwenJones84. And also uh, listen to the podcast, download the podcast, just type in Owen Jones podcast, and you can listen to this wherever you happen to be. And you can also support the show and put questions to the guests using Super Chat on YouTube. Um, I will remember um, to read out everybody's at the end finally i owe an apology but i'll also do at the end because i didn't read out their super chat uh, but i will read out all your super chats and put them to the guests so let me bring in our first guest uh, the brilliant um volodymyr ishenko who we've spoken to before volodymyr is a social scientist from ukraine currently in germany that's right isn't it volodymyr? Yeah, exactly volodymyr, if you don't mind me asking just it's great honor to have you again by the way and last time you were on we had hugely appreciative comments of your contributions Now, since we've spoken, obviously the invasion has begun. I guess I just want to ask you a very human, basic question to begin with. What does what you know as a Ukrainian watching your country being invaded by a foreign army and watching the terrible atrocities being committed? I mean, can you just explain the impact that has on you and other Ukrainians, whether in Ukraine or or outside, watching this happen to your country?
0: Um, speaking about myself, that was a total shock, and uh, like many uh, social scientists who actually studied post-Soviet politics, uh, we regarded that uh, that invasion would be uh, unlikely because of the huge risks and problems that uh, it evidently creates, not, not just for Russia or Russian economy, but for Putin and his ruling clique uh, themselves and uh, now he got into the situation when he cannot let himself be defeated in Ukraine, and uh, that, uh, that, 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 that means quite harsh consequences to how this war may, may proceed, mm-hmm. and you were totally right about uh, grave consequences that may happen uh, if this war would escalate. So yeah, yeah, shock, uh, confusion that's uh, this was not something that uh, I would ever expected uh, before and uh, it, like personally it feels like uh, the country in which I was born might simply disappear or it would be changed so much that uh, I'm not sure I'll find a place there anymore.
1: Yeah, it's pretty. Pretty heartbreaking to hear that, I say, say, Um In terms of, um, I mean, I without, again, just making that sound even, even bleaker, um, is it possible that, for example, the introduction I, I had myself was a bit rose-tinted in that there's been a lot of focus on actually that this hasn't gone very well for Putin's army at all? Uh, the resistance that they've come up against, suggestions that uh, the huge convoys kind of medieval type convoy on on the way to, to Kiev, the capital of, of Ukraine, Putin's army has, has stalled that kind of thing that, you know, they've, they've lost, it seems huge amounts of, of soldiers, often working class concepts thrown into a war that they, they didn't think they were going to fight. Um, they've lost you know, lots of tanks. We can see that. But what you're saying is, it's quite an important point, which is Putin can't afford to lose this. So actually, even though it's not actually going well, they do have a huge amount of force which they could which they could use in order to make sure, however brutal that happens to be, that they will achieve their war aim. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, I fully support this uh, this point that. Uh, um, wh- whatever are the tactical defeats that uh, Russian army uh, suffered in the very first days of the war, first uh, it's it, they they they, they, they we, we need to recognize that at the moment they are actually winning and they continue to advance, taking more and more settlements in Ukraine. Um, and uh, despite the bravery of Ukrainian army and uh, of the citizens that join the territorial defense uh, is, uh, st- structure, they uh, cannot at this point uh, um, do a kind of strategic defeat uh, uh, to the Russian forces. And we also need to understand that uh, Russia is not uh, di- it has not started uh, the general mobilization. Russian army fights it, uh, those forces that uh, are already involved into the Ukrainian operation, or Russian or invasion, uh, which is a more precise term to use. And so uh, Russia has far greater potential that uh, it uh, can use in Ukraine if the things would go worse and uh, they may use uh, more uh, shellings and bombings of uh, Ukrainian forces that defend the cities that would lead to more destruction, more loss of their lives and uh, the, the, there definitely should be all the efforts uh, to put to stop uh, this the further escalation because the, the it's the uh, Ukrainians. It's uh, us who are suffering in in this war.
1: I mean, a bit, one thing I don't understand is how, in the long term, an occupation of Ukraine would be sustainable. Because we've seen the level of resistance which they've encountered, including obviously defiance on the streets, which is a courageous thing to do. That up against soldiers with arms who are clearly capable of pretty brutal acts. I mean. <laughs> You know, I was speaking to a British journalist in Kiev um, earlier this week, and they did put to me, well, actually, look, you know, we're in Kiev. So it's almost like a vantage point of a journalist trying to work out what's going on in Britain by being in Oxford Circus. And, you know, Ukraine elected a pro-Russian president in 2010. But it strikes me that there's so much, that even people who voted on those lines in 2010, there's so much unity now against... The Russian occupation—that it seems seems hard to imagine how they could sustain the occupation for such a long period.
0: Yeah, uh, I think you are right, uh, but we also need to put uh, this first into a context. Uh, there is significant resistance, and we see the rallies against uh, the occupation in, in in many cities that are now under Russian army uh, control. Uh, those rallies are significant, although not. Uh, very large, as we can even see from Kherson, which is quite a big uh, Ukrainian city, uh, and, and that means that um, most of the population so far uh, is, uh, is 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 passive. They may be scared to go to come out against the Russian army. Some parts of them may be like waiting for who whoever wins this war, Uh, other parts are are hating the occupants uh, but are not going to the streets for different reasons. Other people are protesting. Uh, And we also need to recall that by this date uh, already 1.5 million people left Ukraine. They were fleeing from Ukraine, and we also know that uh, it's not allowed for the males uh, between 18 and 60 to leave Ukraine, they wouldn't be just uh, let out uh, through, the, through the borders, so it could be even more people. And uh, generally there are estimations uh, up to 10 million of the refugees uh, that that might leave Ukraine. So uh, seeing this, this big picture, the resistance does not become insignificant. However, uh, it it helps to understand that reactions of Ukrainians to this invasion are are very different, and different people would would behave uh, in a different way. Uh, That said, uh, if uh, Russians uh, would uh, occupy a large part of Ukraine, And even if they uh, install a kind of like pro-Russian puppet government in Kyiv, that government uh, would be seen as illegitimate and uh, it would have very little authority among the population. Uh, Likely, it would consist from the people from either the political emigres who fled uh, from Ukraine after the Euromaidan revolution. And that was something that, the UK intelligence uh, uh, alleged uh, when they published uh, like a possible plan for a pro-Russian government, uh, consistent from the people like like uh, Mikola Azarov, uh, the former prime minister, under Viktor Yanukovych uh, presidency, uh, and f- some, some people from uh, marginal uh, political parties, perhaps as well. Uh, they would have uh, little authority, and uh, it's even uh, difficult to see which uh, social group within Ukrainian society would win from this occupation and from the change of the regime. Uh, we also know that even, even Crimea, which was annexed uh, like without this horror, which is going on in Ukraine right now, uh, and uh, despite the increase of wages and pensions, Crimea is still uh, on the level of the poorest regions in Russia. Uh, so it would require even more, like by the magnitude, of, by the magnitude of order, more resources to attempt improve the material standards in the occupied Ukraine. If if Russia would try to buy. Ukrainians, and it's not clear whether they would get those uh, resources. That means uh, that uh, the Russian government uh, would be would rely primarily on repression and coercion, and perhaps would be uh, one of the most repressive uh, uh, regimes in the whole post-Soviet space. And that means that uh, for some, it, it's, it's possible to. Uh, retain uh, power, relying primarily on coercion for some period of time, but that's a very unstable governance. And we we would see uh, later even larger uh, unarmed resistance. We would see some armed resistance against the occupiers. uh, And uh, furthermore, uh, Ukraine would uh, become an inspiration for Russian and Belarusian opposition. Against Putin and Lukashenko and against other authoritarian leaders in the post-Soviet space. So not only Ukraine uh, under Russian occupation would be unstable, constantly unstable, but uh, it would also destabilize the political order within Russia itself. And that's one of the reasons that that, that uh, Putin bets quite a lot on this invasion, and we would need to see whether he would be even capable to retain power after this occupation.
1: I mean, you mentioned there the former Ukrainian president, Viktor Yukanovich, who was deposed in 2014, and there has been reports that he would be imposed, but as you suggested, there wouldn't be a social group within Ukrainian society for that really to have any legitimacy and therefore repression would obviously, be the default response. And we've got a question from Tad Campwell. He just wonders your view on the sanctions imposed and the impact that will have on the Russian economy. And I'm not aware of this report, so with that disclaimer, but an F- an alleged FSB report leaked suggesting the, that Russia, the Russian economy, I presume, would collapse by the summer. And what do you think? I mean, do you think there is a chance that these very, very strict economic measures against Russia could actually given they've not achieved their war aims quickly in ukraine that could actually stop the war uh,
0: unfortunately i have not read that uh, report yet but i also estimate the impact of uh, sanctions as quite quite considerable and primarily at this moment mm-hmm. uh, considerable impact on the, on the russian elite uh, for which uh, the sanctions create uh, quite considerable Uh, difficulties uh, at the moment, and they might think whether uh, it would be better to uh, get rid of of Putin, Uh, but we also uh, need to think that uh, Putin is uh, not obliged to um, stick to the same model as uh, he uh, ruled uh, before the invasion started, and he would be in the position to start uh, experimenting particularly with the economic models. Uh, just yesterday, uh, a great economic historian, idem toos uh, published uh, uh, his analysis that uh, it would be quite possible to to leave uh, the quite conservative fiscal policies that uh, Russian government used so far and. Uh, uh, try to go to some kind of uh, kind of war Keynesianism or neo-Keynesianism uh, mm-hmm. that uh, would increase state expenditures and try to boost the demand, and uh, that might be something that uh, uh, could make uh, Russian economy less vulnerable, at least mm-hmm. to those sanctions that uh, were imposed right now. And we also need to see how much China is going to help. Russia and uh, because China is is not really interested in in the full defeat of Russia. Mm -hmm. I think they are more interested in uh, in the continuous uh, fight in Ukraine so far as the Western intention is uh, focused on Russia and Ukraine and uh, would not allow to concentrate all the forces on the Chinese uh, priority. Uh, spheres, particularly Taiwan and, 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 and other places. So China uh, may be actually interested to support Russia and to, to help it to avoid uh, the full collapse.
1: Just a couple of final questions. Um, deal with these sensitively. One is this question, which I mentioned about a no-fly zone, which is being raised quite angrily. By Zelensky. we're about to shortly speak to Beatrice Finn of course about a confrontation between two nuclear armed uh, blocks uh, but this is what Zelensky said Obviously, very angry. Um, and I can imagine that anger has a lot of sympathy amongst Ukrainian society at the moment. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are, given no fly zone obviously would mean a, a military conflict, essentially, it would mean the West shooting down Russian planes.
0: Yeah, as far as I understand, no fly zone means would uh, would uh, necessarily mean the escalation of the war uh, between Russia and NATO now. That has a potential to escalate to a nuclear war. Uh, we've seen that uh, Putin's strategy has been uh, raising the stakes once more and then wait if uh, NATO or Ukraine uh, would would, uh, would now start to <clears throat> start to give some concessions and start to negotiate with Putin. If not, raise the stakes again. If not, raise the stakes again. And so uh, he may uh, continue to raise the stake until he would like, put his uh, finger over the red button. And at this moment, he would be waiting that Biden would call him and would finally say, okay, Vladimir, let's, let's talk like Kennedy and Khrushchev and prevent the nuclear ap- ap- apocalypse." Because as, as I said, uh, Putin is, uh, cannot let himself to be defeated in Ukraine. He cannot uh, lose this war, otherwise it would be the uh, beginning of the end of his rule. Uh, that would mean not only losing power, but quite possibly also losing his life. So he, if he, he is betting everything on this war, uh, he may uh, play with the red button uh, just for his own uh, survival. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, uh, in my opinion, that just uh, cancels all the talks about real uh, no-fly zone. What mm-hmm. uh, what the West uh, could do uh, and that could help Ukraine is to actively broker in some uh, compromise peace settlement between Ukraine and Russia. Because so far, as the West is only uh, increasing the sanctions and sending weapons. Which is uh, good for uh, <clears throat> for preventing Russia to stick yeah. to their initial uh, uh, unacceptable demands to Ukraine, and that m- may uh, kind of like uh, decrease the level of their claims for Ukraine mm-hmm. and make them more cooperative in the negotiations, but uh, if, it's, if, if there is no active brokerage for the uh, compromise peace settlement, that means that uh, the West is actually interested in the prolonging this war yeah. for, for forever, creating from Ukraine and Afghanistan for Russia and yes. ma- maybe russians would be even defeated in this new afghanistan that they were defeated in, in the original mm-hmm. afghanistan mm-hmm. like likewise at the us were defeated there mm-hmm. uh, but uh, it would be uh, not not so uh, bad for russia but much worse for actually for ukrainians there would be hundreds of thousands maybe even millions lives uh, killed in this in this war many of ukrainian cities destroyed ukrainian economy completely bombed down to like the stone age and uh, that's not the price i think that uh, is uh, uh worth to pay for this mm-hmm. war
1: just say finally before we move on to beatrice i just wanted to put this to you because it keeps coming up and, and i want to handle it sensitively because just I mean, I spoke about this briefly with you last time, actually. Now, obviously, Russia's stated claim of denazification as a lie. And obviously, the president of Ukraine is himself Jewish. His relatives died in the Holocaust. There has been, obviously, discussion of far-right elements within the Ukrainian uh, military. Um, And I'm just going to bring this up because this is something which has been circulated on social media, and people were quite shocked by it. And this is a mayor of a town who is... Well, a Nazi. Let me just bring up this clip.
0: Artem, can you tell us what happened when Russian troops came into your office? Uh, they were demanding I recognize their authority and allow them to patrol the streets, dearm those who have
2: weapons, and detain those who resist. In the end, I told them, just as Ukrainian soldiers told
1: the Russian warships, "Go f- yourself." So behind him, is blurred out. Is a portrait of Stepan Bandera, who's was a famous, infamous Nazi. Collaborator who is complicit actually in the gen- genocide of, of the Jews. And um, I mean, he was here we go. This is Jerusalem Post. Local Jews in shock after Ukrainian city of Konotop, an neo Nazi mayor. Uh, he drives around in a car bearing the number 1488, a numer- numer- numerological, can't say that word, reference to the phrases we must secure the existence of our people and future for white citizens and Heil Hitler. So I suppose people look at that and go, how how big a problem or an issue is that? There's the Azov Brigade, and people alarmed as well because the Ukrainian Special Forces official Twitter feed put out a picture of bullets being greased with pig fat to shoot at Chechen Muslim soldiers. Twitter removed that tweet on the basis it violated the terms of hateful conduct. So I guess people, my interest is in how marginal are those because people see that and obviously feel a lot of anxiety
0: uh look, uh, i'm I'm probably one of the last people uh, in, uh, in 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 this discussion about Ukrainian far right who would uh, underestimate the their danger and their significance in the pre-invasion uh, Ukrainian politics. Uh, and uh, i I, I, w- I would not st- start to white Stepan Bandera or the Azov regiment. Uh, but uh, we also need to understand that uh, the way that uh, Putin used uh, this uh, denazification uh, label, uh, he he never actually defined it. Uh, There is like a huge space of understanding what what he might mean, starting from uh, disbanding Azov, uh, for example, uh, and uh, ending with complete uh, change of uh, political regime in Ukraine uh, that um, may account for Putin as as something like denazification. Uh, So uh, denazification is obviously simply an ideological uh, tool to legitimate this uh, invasion for a part of Russian population, and I can't say that it's uh, that uh, effective. As, uh, as, as an uh, ideological legitimation. Not, not so many people actually really believe in that they are fighting in Ukraine with some Nazis. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I see the, the polls from Russia, they are more concerned with NATO and uh, the threat for Russia, but not so far, no, no, not as um, uh, enthusiastic about uh, so-called liberation of Ukraine from Nazis. That's not, that's not even um, taking a large part of, Ukraine, of of Russian society. And the problem of Ukrainian far right, of course, exists. And unfortunately, this poor would uh, improve their positions. But this problem should be solved by Ukrainian society itself. Uh, we as Ukrainians need to solve this problem uh, of the disproportionate uh, influence of the far right uh, that are like numerically marginal and mm-hmm. cannot, uh, uh could, ha- could not win uh, significant numbers uh, at the elections, but they did have political influence because the, the, they were mobilized, they were organized, they, they had uh, access to the weapons and uh, that as of. Uh, brigade uh, was indeed something extraordinary if you look uh, in the European context. Uh, but this is Ukrainian problem and Ukrainians need to solve it. And mm-hmm. uh, of course, the uh, recognition of this problem is is uh, is the first thing that is uh, required now. And uh, the recognition of the problem from the West as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these are our problem and we need to solve it by ourselves without Mm -hmm. russian help
1: amen and and it should be said for those who don't know in the last ukrainian elections the far-right parties were battered they got very weak results and also vladimir Putin, of course is a kingpin of far-right extremists across the western world who who very much uh, look up to him there was a big far-right protest in serbia With lots of far right imagery and obviously supporting Putin. I just think that context is important. Vladimir, that was fantastic. And look, it it, it can't be easy talking about this at a time like this. Um, So I just want to pass on all my love and solidarity. And I know everyone either watching or listening will want to do the same thing. It must be an incredibly, unbelievably, indescribably difficult time for you. And you've spoken to us so lucidly and clearly about. About what's happening and, and what's likely to happen. So we we, we really really appreciate it. It was r- real privilege to have you again.
0: Thank you so much. And my take pleasure. care.
1: Take, take care yourself. Take care. Solidarity.
0: Goodbye.
1: Take care. Uh, fantastic to have him. I can't imagine how difficult it must be at the moment to talk about uh, to talk about this. To to, to watch your country uh, have this brutal invasion inflicted upon it and have to discuss it in those lucid terms. Not easy just going to bring in our next guest before we do look it's a difficult conversation to have but we do need to have it because the problem with nuclear weapons is if they exist they can be used that seems probably quite an obvious truth but sometimes obvious truths need to be stated uh this world is the world in which we live is a tinderbox by tomorrow well actually within two hours human civilization could just be wiped out that's the reality of the existence of nuclear weapons. Before I bring in Beatrice, we've got a small, a small clip. I should warn you, although this is from that there were worse clips, I have to say, this is from a BBC program which had a big impact on me growing up. Uh, it was called Threads. It was actually based in Sheffield, which is where I was born, and it's about what would happen if a nuclear war happened. And and you you see throughout the first half growing tensions in iran at the time this was in the early 80s the soviet forces invade iran and then there's a use of a tactical nuclear weapon and then nuclear war happens and the message from this film is if nuclear war happens there is no hope and and the reason it's important to say this is lots of people are flippantly calling for a no-fly zone understandably angry and distressed about the invasion without thinking about the implications others are simply saying we should just go to war with Russia and nuclear war wouldn't happen let's just see this clip i should warn you it's not easy viewing but the worst <laughs> Those are actually the scenes before the main bombs land. Uh, if you're going to watch Threads, which I think everybody should, do it in an afternoon. Don't watch it at night and go for a walk afterwards. Um, let me bring in the brilliant Beatrice Finn. We're so sorry, Beatrice. We've kept you waiting for so long, which I'm hugely apologetic about. Wow. Uh, so, so lucky to have you. Now, uh, Beatrice Finn is the executive director uh, of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, which was the Nobel Prize winner in 2017 hello good to see you you
2: Um,
1: so i suppose a lot of people go look we don't need to have this conversation there's not going to be a nuclear war it's exceptionally unlikely even talking about it is just fear-mongering what do you say
2: um it doesn't feel as exceptionally unlikely uh, right now i don't say that it is likely and and just watching this clip of threats even now it's it's really really difficult to see um uh, it's very hard to say how likely it is, or so make a, a quantitative estimate, right, on, on exactly how it could happen. But what we do know is that it's more likely now than it was like three weeks ago, and the risk. And we've been warning about this. It's not just us scientists, experts for many years have seen these trends, uh, unraveling of arms control agreements. Um, Uh, increased hostility between nuclear armed states upgrading and modernization of nuclear arsenals and have warned that this you know we're we're in a really bad situation and we see an increasing trend where nuclear war might happen and i think now more than ever i think people are really acutely aware of how how fragile it is this kind of idea that it won't happen um and it also relies really on that the leaders in charge of these nuclear arsenals that they act rational and that they think about uh, the consequences of their actions and not just for themselves, but for people all over the world. So I, 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 I wouldn't say that it's, it's you know, likely to happen, uh, but I think that the, the risk is definitely increasing right now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile.
1: Now, if we just talk through what a nuclear war, how it could start. I mean, in threads, interestingly, it involves an invasion, the Soviet invasion of Iran, a fictitious invasion, which obviously didn't happen, um, in order to install a puppet regime. Uh, So there are some parallels, and then you just get this gradual escalation, and you can hear people are going to the pub, they're getting on with their lives, they're settling down and getting a new home, and you just hear the constant, you know, and people are cutting out... ignoring it they're not taking it seriously and then it becomes more and more deadly serious mm. um how do you think in this situation we could end up in that scenario with like we saw with threads how could it escalate do you think in the current scenario to that level
2: i mean we're seeing just as you talked with Vladimir before um we see this kind of conversation about a no-fly zone uh where uh, maybe nato will go in and engage in the war right now and putin has very seriously Before the war started, the week before, he did a massive exercise with all of his nuclear forces. Uh, He then opened the war and the invasion by stating that if anyone tries to interfere with this, you will see consequences that you've never seen before. And then, of course, on Sunday, he announced that he was increasing the nuclear threat levels uh, or the, the threat levels of his nuclear forces. So we of course can see how this uh, current conflict can quite quickly escalate and a lot of experts say that the most likely scenario of nuclear war is uh, after a time of conventional war. Uh, It kind of triggers a maybe a tactical nuclear weapon or like this idea of escalate to de-escalate. But that's not the only way that you know, we can end up in nuclear war, we can also see mistakes and accidents. Uh, for example, falsified data, incoming kind of information that is misread- uh, that can sort of trigger a, 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 an accidental nuclear war. We've seen many many near misses during the Cold War where uh, solar flares on uh, satellites- reflecting on satellites were taken uh, as incoming missile, for example. And only cool heads and clear judgment at that time sort of prevented- the automatic response of counter launch. And when we see this very dangerous kind of t- massive tensions and worry and jumpiness right now, you can also see how any small mistake can kind of trigger really awful uh, consequences. So we could also stumble into nuclear war by accident, uh, making this a uh, extremely dangerous situation right now.
1: Now, I've just been seeing some of the things people were saying on social media. Some people say, well, oh, the Russian military is not doing so well in Ukraine with its equipment. Maybe its missiles, are all, its nuclear weapons are duds.
2: Well, I mean, this is really the danger. And also, what like Vladimir earlier said, um, that, you know, a, a cornered leader that has no way out, uh, but has a lot of nuclear weapons. I mean, Russia has the most nuclear weapons in the entire world of all countries. Um, just a little bit more than the United States. But those two countries have the most absolute um, nuclear weapons. It really, um, it really makes you feel also that, you know, these weapons are meant to be like the last resort, right? But last resort for who? For a dictator's personal survival. Uh, And I think that that's really, really um, a, a big worry right now that we don't know if he will take rational decisions. I mean, I don't think that there's any rational decisions regarding nuclear weapons. But to see a person very cornered like that with maybe no kind of um, uh, way out. But in, on the other hand, also, the, the war is continuing uh, without nuclear weapons. And I think that this justification of having nuclear weapons that it somehow keeps peace and security, great stability has really gone out of the window right now, we can see how nuclear weapons are not used to protect Russia. Uh, but that he's using his nuclear weapons to basically tell everyone to back off, stay out, let me invade Ukraine and do whatever I want to Ukrainian people. And I so much empathize with, with uh, the Ukrainian president when he calls for a no-fly zone, but also the West having nuclear weapons. And I'm thinking about the United States, UK and France, for example, in NATO prevents them from helping. Uh, and it it really triggers these enormous questions that there are no good answers like how many ukrainians would have to die before we risk starting a nuclear war i mean obviously nothing justifies you know starting a nuclear war like but how how are we just going to be able to watch so these nuclear weapons clearly do not create stability and peace uh it doesn't create any sort of balance right now it just leaves ukraine completely on its own uh, and i think that's that's really a, a consequence of nuclear weapons
1: yeah i have to say when there are various people on social media and they'll say if you oppose a no-fly zone on the basis it could lead to a military conflict nuclear war that that's sacrificing ukraine but of course in the event of a nuclear war ukraine would be sacrificed in the most literal sense along with mm-hmm. the northern hemisphere uh, just, just don't look, this is a morbid conversation, but it's necessarily morbid because I do think the reality has to be painted. Threads was very effective because it made people, It a lot of people I think think of nuclear war and they imagine kind of wandering around a slightly broken up urban landscape um, and they haven't really thought through the reality. If a nuclear exchange took place between East and West, what would that actually mean? What would happen?
2: Well, first, if, if one nuclear weapon is used, I mean, you have things like you saw in the clip. Of course, the first the flash that blinds people if you look at it. Um, then the blast that will just knock over buildings, explode all windows for kilometers out. And all of this depends, of course, on the size of the bomb and the terrain of the of the the ground where it's used. Um, and then you know the fireball that. The core of the fireball is hotter than the surface of the sun. I mean, it will burn and melt everything. Bodies will vaporize Um, and then, of course, the fires that will, will, you know, burn everything flammable, uh, which will also suck out oxygen and create these kind of firestorms in the surrounding areas. And then, of course, the radiation that will fall down on on people who have survived the initial attack, uh, meaning that it's. Um. Anything from a few hours until, you know, decades later, you can still uh, feel the consequences and and die from the consequences. And it's absolutely horrible to think about. And, you know, we have worked with also actors like the UN humanitarian agencies, the International Committee of the Red Cross, who have looked into what would they uh, sort of uh, first responders do in case of a nuclear detonation. And they basically conclude that they can do nothing, they will pull their staff out because of the radiation, because they're not allowed to put their own people in jeopardy. And there will be no sort of hospitals able to treat patients, there will be no doctors that will be able to help, uh, no blood transfusions, no burn, but ba- not enough burn beds in the entire world to just kind of deal with the impact of just one nuclear detonation. And of course, I mean, that that's, you know, everyone who would survive the initial bomb would. Be left alone help would not come and if you talk about full-scale nuclear war i mean in addition to this happening over and over in many different places you also have of course the the suit and the smoke from uh the bombs and from the firestorms that come that will kind of turn into a cloud over the in the atmosphere this kind of nuclear winter that we talked a lot about in the 80s uh, that will Drastically cool the climate very, very quickly knock out global crops of corn and rice, for example, and cause mass starvation all over the world. I mean, the the food supplies, you know, globally will be completely devastating. So over the next decade, billions of people would starve to death. I mean, it's really, that's what we're talking about when we talk about full scale war a uh, nuclear war. And I know this is extremely difficult to talk about. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time myself working on this issue, talking about this over and over, saying, we must take this seriously. But right now, it, it's really difficult, even for me to, to say these things. And I think that it's, it's extremely anxiety inducing. Um, and I, I just, you know, I just want to fly that that that's completely normal to feel completely overwhelmed and mm-hmm. anxious about this, because it, it is so massive, uh, this threat that it's, it's hard to process as an individual.
1: Before we... We will end... I know it seems hard for people to imagine. We're going to end on a hopeful note, I promise. Um, I mean, again, this is morbid. In the exchange... In the in the event of a nuclear exchange between East and West, many will go, well, that would be devastating for the Northern Hemisphere. But it seems unlikely that Rio de Janeiro uh, would be bombed, that Sydney would be bombed, that much of Africa would be bombed. So even though hundreds of millions of Americans and Europeans would perish, maybe the rest of human civilization would just be, be able to survive. Of course there will be survivors. And I think that's also important
2: to, to remember because we sometimes have this idea that nuclear war is almost like a computer game. You know, once you take these decisions, it's game over and we all end, you know, it all ends. Um, but that's not the case. Uh, there were a lot of survivors in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, for example- who have lived long lives and, you know, somebody has to deal with the consequences. And somebody has to be responsible for trying to, um, you know- piece people together again afterwards. Um, so, of course, an immediate sort of nuclear war, say, in Europe would, would- you know, completely devastate the whole continent. But these kind of long-term implications on food security, on food production- on the climate kind of catastrophe- that would follow a nuclear winter. That would not just be for the northern hemisphere. That would be for the entire world. So there will be mass consequences, mass starvation, deaths all over the world. There will be no place on earth that would be left sort of unbothered for this. From this, and we see also with things like, it's, it's very similar in, in a way to the, the issues around climate change and pandemic. You can't isolate these kind of existential threats. It's not one place, and like it's not us, so we're fine. This really concerns everyone. And I think that's also why it's so important that everyone uh, is engaged in this issue and and has a voice on this issue because it's not just the nine nuclear armed states or maybe Europe. Uh, it's it's really a global issue.
1: As we said, this is very anxiety-inducing, and people will find it difficult to listen to. But given a threat, you know, if there was a, if you thought there was a zero point five percent chance that you were going to get killed on the way to the shop you would consider that a serious threat worth engaging with
0: yeah. uh, and
1: we're talking here about the future of human civilization
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, we don't know if there's other uh, life in the universe we can hope based on the odds there are but actually given we don't have any evidence of any other forms of life in the universe as things stand what a gamble to take with the only life the only intelligent life we are aware of where people live and love Uh, as intelligent social animals. What a gamble to take with that, to wipe that out as we know it. In terms of what people can do, because people think about this and they just want to push it out of their mind, they don't want to think about it, they feel helpless, they feel impotent, they're upset and angry about the invasion of Ukraine, but obviously they see this threat of nuclear war. What can people do? What can people who are worried about this huge existential menace, which would be the death of all of us as we know it, What can they do? Well, I mean,
2: first of all, it's it's important, like if you feel sort of super anxious at the moment and really worried. uh, I've had so many phone calls and messages this last week about people sort of I'm terrified, like I can't sleep. I think it's important to remember that it hasn't happened yet, which means that we have a chance to stop it. And there are a lot of people working to stop it. Um, And I think that the the kind of way that also um, other governments with nuclear weapons have responded to the, to Putin's threat to use nuclear weapons. is shows that they're taking this seriously. But long term, like immediately, of course, Ukrainians have suffering right now, and that's a that's a big focus. But long term, we have to remove this threat because even if it's like a one point, like zero point five percent chance that this will this will happen, given enough time, if we keep doing this over and over again, we already were very lucky during the whole Cold War. Uh, we didn't avoid nuclear war just you know by skill. Uh, we It was just pure luck, um, and we keep pushing that luck. Eventually, statistically speaking, right, it will happen. So we can really decide, do we eliminate nuclear weapons after they've been used or before they've been used? So there are like a lot of efforts. I mean, we were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for the work that we did with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, um, which really mobilizes these other countries, African countries, Latin American countries, Asia Pacific countries, to say that, hey, we don't want to be a part of this. We do not want to die in nuclear war because nine individual, all men at the moment, um, are, you know, trust them. I mean, do we as a whole world and, and you put it very well, Owen, you know, the humanity as we know it, do we put that in the hands of Putin right now and say he's, he's responsible to take care of this? I mean, it's absolutely bizarre. So this treaty is really Um, You know, nuclear disarmament is not going to happen overnight, Um, it's a long process, but I think that now we're really understanding that we can't let this happen anymore, we can't leave it be completely legitimate, what Putin is doing is completely in line with nuclear deterrence theory, so everyone is advocating that we need nuclear weapons, there you go, this is what happens when we have nuclear weapons, and when you say that it's okay to threaten with these weapons, and that creates peace and stability, it doesn't, so we really have to start working to eliminate nuclear weapons. Um, and I think that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was a UN-negotiated treaty. Um, it was adop- adopted by the General Assembly uh, because the Security Council is completely deadlocked on this issue and cannot agree because are the vetoes there. Uh, so the General Assembly took this up in 2017, and we've been working to get more and more governments to join this treaty. Um, we, we need people to speak out. Uh, we need governments to get to the table. Um, I think that there's, of course, you know, really devastating scenario now, right now. But I can't see how Putin um, can come back into the international community and continue like before. So of course, we don't know what's going to happen with this war. It might be massive, you know, devastating impact. Maybe nuclear war. But if we're not, if we're not. Uh, If we manage to survive this crisis, I think there's an opportunity to get nuclear armed states to the table to negotiate this. And we should use the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Organizations like ICANN, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, we're we're not starting from scratch. So if people are worried and just starting to think about this right now, you know, there are organizations like ours. Uh, We have over 600 NGOs in 108 countries. We have loads of parliamentarians. We have people like the, the, the Pope and the Catholic Church behind us. We have cities. All over the world, you know, New York's, Washington, Paris, Manchester in the UK have adopted motions like supporting this treaty and saying we have to do something about this problem. So there is a lot of things. So I would really encourage people to support the people who work on this issue. As soon as we see these crises, people don't have to start over from the beginning. There are movements and organizations already working that, and they need your support and your engagement right now.
1: Just final couple of questions from people who are watching. Uh, David Barata asks, ask, is it possible to develop a reliable anti-nuke defense shield, which makes nukes obsolete? Um, that was the Star Wars program, wasn't there, under mm. Ronald Reagan, which attempted to achieve that. And the other from Peter D'Souza, uh, did the Cold War ever end?
2: Well, I mean, the, the U.S. has been working on this uh, missile uh, shield for a long time, this idea that you can take out uh, a nuclear missile, which then, of course means that even if you launch nuclear weapons, the other side, they can be taken out. Uh, it doesn't work. It's it's impossible. And also it's impossible if they fire several at the same time. Um, they, they spend enormous amount of money on this kind of like trying to develop these kind of missile shield, shields. Um, and they work like one out of ten, ten times they hit the mist, they can target the missile. And that's just not good enough. It also kind of triggers like if you, you know, it trying to create this kind of defense also triggers um, the incentive to use nuclear weapon first and quick and immediately in a conflict before the other side do it, uh, which completely kind of encourages nuclear war. So it's actually really dangerous. Um, The Cold War, if it ended, um, I mean, of course, it officially ended. Um, We had an opportunity, I think, in the 90s to really get on with nuclear disarmament and we missed it. And in many ways, it's a little bit like things like stopping smoking It's never a good time when it's good times like, oh, we don't need to do it now. Everything is fine. Russia is fine. Uh, When it's bad time, well, we can't do it now because now it's really dangerous. Now we need them. It's never the best, like a great time to stop uh, and to work on nuclear disarmament. So we really did miss a massive opportunity at the end of the Cold War. The Reagan Gorbachev meeting was was an opportunity where they were this close to actually agree on, on disarming the nuclear arsenals. Um, And that can happen again. We can be in that same situation again. Um, These massive, huge crises can also lead to a complete change. So if we want this crisis now to be a wake-up call, we have to push our our politicians uh, and push the kind of conversation to demand that. That we need to take this opportunity and this fear that people are feeling right now and turn it into political action and make sure that we take the opportunity after this crisis maybe, to progress with nuclear disarmament.
1: Beatrice, it's been such an honour to have you. And just so anyone who's either watching or listening on the podcast uh, who wants to support the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, we've got a link here, which I think we're going to flash up on the screen. Here we go. So if you go to www.icanw.org forward slash join, uh, then you can support the brilliant efforts of what is a Nobel uh, Peace Prize winning uh, organization which very courageously fights uh quite an important fight i would say for the continued mm-hmm. existence of human civilization i think it's important to say this because i mean you know some you know we're just is you know what we're looking at as a brutal and criminal invasion of ukraine mm-hmm. in which civilians are being massacred by putin's forces um and when i've and you know those of us who've argued, for example, against a no-fly zone, which in practice means a shooting mil- Russian military planes out the sky zone. Uh, no, this is kind of you an apologist for Putin when actually it's just being an apologist for the continued existence of of humanity as a species. It's the most precious thing we have the the life that we 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 all have on Earth, and we do have the power to obliterate it in a very 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 short space of time. And I don't think people have really often appreciated that, which is why talking to you and having it spelt out in what many people will find pretty gruesome and macabre terms, Mm. that is the reality we would face if this crisis escalates to that point. And people do need to be aware of that because that risk does exist. It always exists, but it becomes more acute at a time like this. So we need to discuss it, even if people find that upsetting. So thank you so so much, Beatrice. Honestly, it's been such an honour, and I hope people will do all they can to support your brilliant organisation in its uh, sterling efforts. And people, if they're watching, they can see the link. But we will also, I'll include the link in the podcast description, so people can click there as well. So lots of love. T- take care of yourself, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Brilliant stuff. Not. Um, not uplifting stuff um we'd love of course to talk about far more optimistic uh events but unfortunately we have to deal with the material that we have and that material is pretty grim um but organizations like that do do brilliant work so if you can support them please do um just going to quickly go through some of the super chats um Peter, I'm going to thank everyone as well. Peter Donovan, thank you. If he goes for Poland and gets close to India by annexing Central Asia, we have problems. Yeah, I I do think we need, look, I think think we need to talk obviously about Putin's invasion in the terms it deserves, which is a criminal and barbaric uh, invasion um, of a country which does not want to be dominated and subjugated by Russia. Obviously, I don't think, for example, India is plausibly under threat from from Russia. I do, I do think it's important to put things in, in, in proportion and, and just be, I mean, they're struggling in Ukraine, if we're going to be honest, like the resistance they're facing in Ukraine is bad enough. I don't think they have the capability or capacity to attack Poland at all. Um, that obviously would be a NATO country, uh, uh, you know, and that would invoke article the, the relevant, is it Article 13? I always forget, I think it's Article 13, which would require everybody else to, to take that as an attack on all NATO member states. Um, historically, Poland, of course, has suffered domination by the Russian Empire and then obviously in the Soviet Union as part of the Warsaw Pact. I, I don't think that's plausible, to be honest. I think what's happening here is bad enough and we should put that in proportion. You know, there's been some comparisons people keep making with the Nazis. I do think that's problematic. To be, to be honest, um, it, you know, it strikes me at times like this, that the only historical reference point people can often fall upon is the Nazis and the beginning of second wo- the Second World War. Um, and I think that's problematic in lots of ways. In, and talking about this doesn't deflect from the seriousness of this invasion or the brutality of Putin's regime. But this isn't the nazis the nazis were a genocidal totalitarian regime with a coherent genocidal ideology with which hitler expounded in very brutal and not very subtle terms in mein kampf in the mid-1920s after he attempted um a the beer the beer house putsch um beer hall putsch sorry um and putin is more in the tradition of a greater russian chauvinist he runs a kleptocratic gangster authoritarian regime of a sort which is not uncommon in history if we're going to be honest and for example i criticized gary kasparov which some people thought was outrageous how dare i disagree with a world chess champion i mean i'm not disputing obviously he's a clever man certainly very good at chess and he said that world war three has already begun world war three hasn't begun and the reason I think it's important to say that is the people saying World War Three has begun are saying it because they're, they're arguing for military intervention. They're saying war's already here anyway. So actually we should respond accordingly, um, which obviously would lead to a nuclear apocalypse. So I don't obviously agree with that for pretty fundamental reasons, like the existence of human civilization. Um, and I think um, the reason it's important to you know rebut that is it is well is is very eurocentric because i mean even if you take syria a horrific conflict in which huge numbers of people died in a sense you can argue that has more of a claim to a more global war because lots of different global powers russia the us various european countries lots of middle eastern nations like iran for example like saudi arabia qatar were all directly involved and are still in that horrific conflict um, you also did have the invasion of Iraq, which was illegal. And and, and you, the UN General Secretary, Kofi Annan, said it was illegal under the UN Charter, it violated it in the way Russia's invasion of Ukraine violates the UN Charter. Um, and to be honest, if people are saying this is World War Three, then they don't think it's World War Three, they think it's World War Four, because actually the Cold War, based on the new definition of World War, according to Garry Kasparov, uh, would qualify as a World War. I mean, you, you had lots of wars. You have the Korean War, in which 5 million people died. You have the Vietnam War, in about and, and across Southeast Asia there, about 3 million died in that war. Uh, you have the Soviet invasions of Hungary, which was pretty brutal, in 1956. You had the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, I've got photos of that for the reason that my dad was there when it happened and saw the Soviet tri- tanks. He was actually in Bratislava in Slovakia. Uh, I'm not sure he was a spy, but Sorry, he's, he's dead. He can't really defend himself from the allegation. My dead father is not a spy. Let me just clarify that. Uh, but he was there when that happened. What I'm saying is you, you've had, you know, I think we need to be careful because, you know, some of the rhetoric has been shocked, not on the basis that this is a people under attack, which is why we should be angry. These are human beings under attack, but because they're Europeans. And some of the commentary, people have just said the quiet part out loud. You've had various people saying, you know, this is shocking because it's Europe. This is shocking because they're Europeans. This is shocking because they're people who look like us and live like us, as one general said, that worries me because it, it, you know, the attention Ukraine gets is the attention that Ukraine deserves. And that attention should also be extended elsewhere like Yemen, which was the biggest humanitarian crisis on earth, uh, in which Saudi-led bombs supplied by Britain and America uh, are being used to slaughter children there, including a school bus where children were on a school bus and away way back from a, from a picnic. Uh, we should talk about the Palestinians. If we talk about the right of the Ukrainians to resist occupation, why isn't that courtesy extended to the Palestinians? I think it's important to put this in context because... I do think people talking about what is a brutal invasion in a very specific part of Europe and trying to portray that as world war three are playing a dangerous game because they're trying to pave the way for an escalation, which actually would be a world war three in which the consequences would be catastrophic. That's a long answer, but I just think it's important to say, uh, thank you to Peter D'Souza. Uh, thank you to Tad Campwell as ever. Thanks to Daz Patrick, um, who I didn't put the question to, sorry about that, to Vladimir. We had his time for so long, so we ran out of time. Does your speaker feel about like Russian resources could be bolstered by Chinese support, and how does he respond to claims that Ukraine has been used as a proxy conflict between NATO and the Eastern powers? Thanks, owner Vlad. Yeah, I think, by the way, it's, it's interesting what could happen if this goes badly for Russia, because actually China will benefit, because you'll end up with Russia increasingly dependent on China, which is a rising power. Um, you know, I'd be interested to know actually what's going on in the meetings of the ruling Chinese regime at the moment. Um, uh, they abstained in the in the vote condemning the invasion of the UN General Assembly. Uh, they are, have become close. Um, and, you know, I just think actually what could end up happening is a, a crippled and weakened Russia just enters firmly into the Chinese orbit. Um, in terms of a proxy conflict, yeah, I mean... <sighs> it's again look i've made clear you know i said this last week i i personally don't support nato which puts me in a very small minority of people it's not a fight i normally fight on the the same way i don't fight the issue of the monarchy uh because you know it's just most people don't support abolishing the monarchy. Uh, and I just don't prioritize it in the way I do with like public ownership or high taxes on the rich or or a, high, a higher minimum wage or workers' rights where most people are on the same side as the left. Um, but I, I just think where I'd be careful is, um, you know, I, there's this, I've forgotten his name now, this U.S. realist, um, who's a kind of foreign policy realist, who I think some on the left are sharing his work in ways that I find problematic because he's arguing essentially that Ukraine slipping into the NATO orbit um, potentially is what provoked Russia. And the problem I have with his analysis is he basically says that it's just a fact and a, the reality of the world that great powers dominate their, their the areas around them, that the US wouldn't tolerate a hostile foreign power Uh, building up military forces in Mexico and Central and and Southern and South America. um, And accordingly, Russia wouldn't in Eastern Europe. And I don't accept the US's claims on Latin America, the so-called Monroe Doctrine, which set that out. I don't accept it. And I don't accept Russia's claim to dominate Eastern and Central Europe either. I think nations have the right to self-determination. I don't support great power status. I don't support the idea that powers with, large militaries and certain economic powers and large populations should have the right to dominate those who, but you know, through no choice of their own happen to live in the neighborhood. I just don't support that. I think it's a thuggish way of looking at the world. Um, you know, the reality is to be honest, lots of countries in Eastern and Central Europe have ended up supporting NATO because they fear Russia more than the West. It's just a fact. I mean, you can see that now in Finland, support for NATO is very low, it's shot up as a consequence of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, So I think, you know, we talk often about Western aggression, because we're talking about the leverage we have over our own governments, that our main enemy is at home, because that's where we have power over our own governments. And hence, you know, for example, the aggression in Iraq, that was done in our name, that's why we said not in our name in the anti-war movement. that doesn't mean other powers aren't capable of terrible acts of criminality and brutality. And that is what Russia was doing. So I just think we should be very clear, whatever we think about Ukraine's choices, it does have the right to national self-determination as any country does. And I, I would note that the actions of Putin have driven Ukraine into the arms of the West, into the, in the hands of the West, sorry. or the arms, no, the arms of the West. Um, because um, as early, as recently as 2010, they voted for a pro-Russian president he certainly wouldn't do that now so you can just see how catastrophic his tactics have been i mean ukraine there was a large majority against NATO membership that's not the case anymore so anyway there we go um rachel atwood uh hello from warsaw got out of kiev last week my world is upside down but i'm lucky ukrainians need to build solidarity with other refugee communities all my solidarity in love with you rachel i'm glad you're out of kiev um, and i'm glad the refugees have managed to get out of kiev also out of kiev Um, we need to put pressure on our own government to take in more refugees. It's unacceptable that the British government is not pulling its way and not doing what it can. Um, So that's absolutely something we should build pressure on and to make the links with other refugee communities that we should be taking in more refugees. 87% of refugees are in poorer countries. The Global South with the least resources to look after those refugees. Britain takes in far less refugees than other EU countries. Oh, hold on. That's my camera vanishing. Sorry, one second everyone. Let me just appear with my laptop. We're finishing now anyway. But I think slight technical issue. There I am. Hi everyone. Um so yeah, we need to we need to fight for all refugees uh you know whether it be those who are victims of western aggression as well like in Yemen, Iraqis uh as well as the victims of conflict all over the world, partly because of dictatorship, but the West, that they are supported as well. Thanks to David Bartet as ever. And sorry for not reading out your question last week. I'm a disgrace. Would Napoleon's France be a more accurate comparison? David says. I think we should look back to be honest at greater Russian chauvinists, Tsarist Russia, that kind of thing. Those are the sorts of precedents. Um, people say he's a neo-Soviet trying to build up the Soviet Union. That's not. That's ahistorical. He hates the Soviet Union. He's made that clear. His speech defines himself against the Soviet Union. Putin once said, "He who um, doesn't miss the Soviet Union and has no heart. He who wants to rebuild the Soviet Union and has no brain. He's not so he misses the Russian dominance, but he doesn't miss what the Soviet Union was, which he thought bred weakness and so on." Kieran Buckley, I think it's likely Russia will eventually capture Ukraine, but I don't know if they would be able to hold on to the country for very long. I agree with you, Kevin. I just don't see how a country with so much opposition to Russian dominance would be, you know, how that's sustainable. We've seen the huge levels of resistance already. I suppose my worry is if I look at Chechnya, uh, two wars were used to devastate that country, raised Grozny, the capital, to the ground. Chechnya has been subjugated, and indeed, Chechen militias are being used against the people of Ukraine. So we'll see about that. Uh, Tad Campbell again. Uh, in my opinion, civilization is just the ability for someone to exert monopoly power for its peoples and create space for ideas and industry to advance and never last forever. Cheery, thanks, Tads. Cheers. Well, that's that's our Sunday afternoon's complete. Um, cheers, everyone. Not a, not, not a cheery program. Um, and it was important to talk about this, though. I'm glad we have. Thanks, everyone, for your comments. Uh, we've got lots to come, we'll have lots more coverage of the crisis, including more brilliant speakers. Uh, do support on patreon.com I'm not going to mention my booking because winding everyone up a thing but <laughs> I haven't finished it yet and therefore can, we'll be able to soon dedicate more time to this video channel which it deserves thanks to your support and the team um, and uh, do listen to us on the podcast and I'll be here live next Sunday uh, have a great week everyone take care, look after yourselves lots of love, solidarity, see ya
0: please support this channel for independent thought Discussion of the most important issues that we face.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road. Uh, forward slash Orange Jones eighty four. Leave us some stars. That'd be nice spread the word and I look forward to speaking to you soon.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,